Welcome to the Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning independent pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delisio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Dennison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist. Welcome, Compounding World, and welcome to the latest episode of a Mortar and Pestle APCCA podcast. My name is Mike Delisio, and as always, I am joined with Sebastian Dennison. Hey, Seb. Hey, Mike. Good to be back. Another another uh, episode, ready to be rolled. Yeah, ready to be rolled. And it, you know what's really funny is that probably a year of doing this, and we didn't realize it until uh, our our sound director, uh, Quentin, just basically notified us that it's been a year that we have not been in our studio. Uh, but nevertheless, the opportunity that we get from from all that is that we get a chance to connect with some amazing individuals who don't often find themselves in PCC's headquarters. And that individual today, we are so fortunate to have back on the podcast is the executive director, or I should say chief executive officer for the Alliance of Pharmacy Compounding. And that is none other than Scott Bruner. Scott, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Uh, I'm glad to be back. I, I, I guess this means that I didn't mess up too much the first time. In my opinion, it's the polar opposite. Uh, the, the benefit, like I said, of having you join on um, is such a major thing. Because I think last time when you when you came on, it was I felt like the conversation was probably more or less centered on on the pandemic and you know what was APC's response. How were you guiding independent community pharmacy? Um, through all the challenges and ordeals that you know the patient community essentially faced and the pharmacy community faced. And it gave also our listeners an opportunity to kind of get a state of the union in the middle of the pandemic. I think, I hope today's conversation will be a continuation of a lot of the, you know, the key things that you are doing as an organization. And we hope that you can also use our platform to almost give a state of the union or a year in review um, to a lot of our listeners, because I think the advocacy portion has always been so important to PCCA and is so important to so many of our members. And, and having you be on this type of platform, like I mentioned, is just the, the greatest way that we can get your word out as well. So, you know, thanks for, for taking the time out of your schedule to be with us. Uh, I know we probably have a lot to discuss in terms of, you know, what's changed, what's gone on since the last time we had a chance to speak last um, one of the things that popped up to me and something that I, I think we should probably address again is that APC as an organization was formerly known as IACP. And once again, welcome to the compounding world. It's an alphabet soup of acronyms. Um, maybe you can kind of revisit that whole topic and talk about, you know, what APC has done to be recognized as the alliance versus what it was formerly known as as the International Academy of Compounding Pharmacists? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, let me say thank you to PCCA and to you guys for inviting me back. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely grateful for, for the opportunity. Um, yes, when we talked last time, we were in the middle of a pandemic and we were talking about temporary guidances and, and that sort of thing. Um, that crisis we hope is coming to an end, but there continue to be challenges in, in pharmacy compounding. And, and as you know, that's what our organization exists to do. We are in our 16th month with our new name, the Alliance for Pharmacy Compounding. Uh, that took effect January uh, 1st of 2020. 
And the name change was really brought about by a recognition of the fact that, first of all, we weren't only an organization for pharmacists. And as the International um, Academy of Compounding Pharmacists, it sounded uh, to outsiders like the only people we wanted to belong were, were pharmacists. But no, we wanted technicians and educators and supply chain professionals and marketers and even policymakers and patients and prescribers. And so part of the, 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 the impetus for the name was to cast a broader net. Uh, we want to be the organization, the advocacy organization that represents the entire scope of pharmacy compounding. The other thing we weren't quiet quite was uh, international. Um, we are truly in our focus, uh, an American, a, a US uh, organization, our policy work is here in the US and we didn't want to send the message that we might be uh, representing um, uh, the international community. We certainly welcome them and we certainly engage with them, but our policy focus is, uh, is on Congress and what happens in state uh, legislatures. So it has been well received, we are, um, more and more being recognized by the new name. There were a few questions uh, in conversations with FDA officials and others up front, you know, aren't you the organization that used to be IACP? And we would tell them, yes, I think now uh, they recognize us as uh, a broad alliance that represents the pharmacy compounding uh, profession and industry. And with that change, um, what we've also seen is this sort of advocacy also for good regulatory practice. And what we, we kind of want to discuss that because it was always seen as this resistance, but now we're seeing it as almost an embracing of, of that regulatory sort of landscape. Well, our, our sweet spot has always been advocacy, uh, particularly focused uh, on Capitol Hill in, in, in Washington, on the U.S. Congress. We have ambitions of growing our footprint, our effectiveness, our credibility uh, in, uh, with state boards of pharmacy and state legislatures and are more and more, and, and frankly, thanks to your team there at PCCA, Amy Shank uh, and others are, are, are helping us to do that. We are beginning to, uh, to have that credibility at the state level. But we have, over a number of years, taken a lot of criticism, unfairly, I think. Um, the, the, the sense has been that we were an organization that was anti-regulation whatsoever. And that's never been our stance. We are uh, an, a, a profession that we believe must be highly and well regulated, not overregulated, and the regulation needs to be practical. Regulation of pharmacy compounding shouldn't inconvenience or create barriers to patient access to compounded preparations. And so common sense regulation has always been our sweet spot. Um, in a variety of ways in recent years, uh, just really over the past two years, FDA has doubled down on some of its criticism of us. Other groups have uh, as well. So um, we determined that the best thing we could do is be proactive. Um, two weeks ago, the APC Board of Directors embraced a policy statement. We call it what we stand for. It's about as simple as that. And it's a three or four page document that really outlines um, what APC is about when it comes to the regulatory and legal framework of pharmacy compounding. Um, we support DQSA, uh, despite uh, the efforts of some to paint us as a group that does not. We support 
um, the, the requirement of a patient-specific prescription uh, for 503As to be able to compound preparations. Uh, and a range, of, a, a range of other things are in that document. It's on our website under the advocacy tab. And I would, I would, in, I would urge listeners to go and, and, and review it. I, I think you'll find it interesting, particularly if you are a pharmacy compounding uh, professional. The other thing that the document does though, is indicate a willingness on our part to be proactive in response to some of these criticisms uh, that others have made of us. Um, we believe that there is room for a common sense conversation about adverse events reporting in pharmacy compounding. Now, FDA would tell you that any adverse event is a serious adverse event when it relates to a compounded preparation and therefore must uh, be reported. Well, that's a non-starter. Let's talk common sense. Um, so we would sit down and, and discuss, you know, how do we create an adverse events reporting framework? We believe it ought to start at the state level uh, that would work for pharmacy compounding and that would meet the concerns of, uh, of regulators. Another issue that we uh, indicate that we would favor is um, state level registration of compounders, um, very much like what already happens in Texas and Florida and California, so that the State Board of Pharmacy and other regulators have a handle on who are the compounders and what they're compounding. We believe there's room for a good conversation there, and we would like to be a part of, of that. Probably the most difficult one is standardized labeling. Um, there are, as your listeners know, there are so many formulations um, that it's going to be really hard to get absolute standardization. But do we think there's a middle ground there um, that we could help bring about working with regulators? Yeah, that's a conversation we would like to have. And so I'm really proud of our board of directors uh, and the stance they've taken in, in saying, we're not against regulation. We're for common sense regulation. And here are a few things we're willing to talk about. So if we're talking about common sense discussions, um, where do you see some of these advocacy pieces? And you said that you're getting better conversations with some of the state boards. Um, do you have any examples of that where you're, where you're seeing those conversations really start to take place and that you're, you're seeing those benefits come to life? I think the most obvious one is related to the FDA's memorandum of understanding with states on um, out-of-state shipments. Um, it is, um, frankly, the crisis du jour. Um, FDA finalized the MOU last October. They've given states a year uh, to sign on to it or not. We believe that the implications of not signing the MOU by states will be catastrophic for patients who are served by compounded preparations and, and frankly, for compounding business owners um, as well. I think what FDA has done is put state boards of pharmacy in a, in a no-win situation. Um, what was supposed to be a carrot for states in the form of the MOU uh, is really just another stick. So uh, you sign the MOU, the state takes on uh, a number of administrative burdens and costs, staffing, inspections, um, and yet if they don't sign, they are, will have suddenly implemented, apparently October 26th, um, a, a threshold, a 5% a, a, a cap on shipments uh, from that state. 
Um, so that's not what Congress intended, and we've made that case again and again. But at the end of the day, if it comes down to a 5% cap uh, versus the state signing the MOU, we think states ought to sign. The important message for states right now that we've been delivering and have gotten feedback from states and are working with states, and again, PCCA's team has been instrumental in helping us with this, is just about elevating the issue in the eyes of many state boards of pharmacy, they don't have a compounder on the board. So they don't necessarily get the implications of what FDA is demanding that they do. And so in state after state, uh, we are helping to facilitate some of those conversations. And really the message right now is urging those states to take a serious look at this and determine if they are able to sign. Um, they may find that um, because of state law, et cetera, they're not able to sign the MOU. And the FDA needs to be hearing about that uh, promptly. Um, one thing we uh, uh, will do in the next couple of weeks is send a letter to FDA. Um, we're hoping that our sister associations will join us on this letter, asking for an extension of that October 26th, 2021 deadline for signing the MOU, simply because so many states have now determined that under state law, they can't sign the thing. And many state uh, legislatures are already out of session. So it's gonna be 2021. Um, if your state meets every, if state legislature meets every other year, it may even be 2022 before the state legislature can act. And there are maybe seven or eight states already that are in that boat. A handful of those states have asked FDA um, if they can implement the MOU by regulation as opposed to signing it because they've determined that their state law uh, will not allow them to, to actually sign uh, the MOU. FDA has not responded to those states yet. Um, I, I have no idea what the chances of FDA saying yes to that uh, are, but we've got, like I say, seven or eight states right now that are, are really in a pickle um, over this thing and may not be able to sign. And if October 26th comes and FDA doesn't extend the deadline, um, that's catastrophic for compounders in those states. And this is, this is an important conversation because not only is it making sure that the state legislator moves, the regulatory authorities are aware of this, but it's also building that sort of trust and that sort of understanding. Like you're not just there, you're not just there on behalf of uh, the compounders, you're there on behalf of the patients, you're there on behalf of physicians, you're there on behalf of this, uh, this sort of larger group at, on mass saying, look, we, we're taking these things seriously and we're trying to assist you in making the best decisions as opposed to we're a roadblock, we're, we're a barrier. So it, it, is, it is definitely important, but you're right. It is catastrophic. For those of you who are listening in any of those seven or eight states, please go to the website, make sure you check in, make sure you are talking to your representatives and making sure that they're aware of this looming deadline. Um, next question, which I have to ask, What's the next big thing on your plate as a, as a group and as an advocacy board and what you're getting questions about? Because I know that the memory, memorandum of understanding is looming, but I know there's a bigger shadow being cast across our, across our practice. Yeah, probably the, the biggest issue that we're dealing with at the moment and we'll continue to deal with, I believe, over the next one, two, three, or more years is uh, FDA's implicit threat to restrict compounded hormone therapy. We did a survey in 2019, and some of you who've heard me have heard me spout this statistic before, but it's an important statistic. Uh, about 83% of compounders say that compounded hormone therapy is at least 20% at least 
of their business. For many of them, it's considerably more than that. So um, NASM dropped its report July of last year, right in the middle of the pandemic. Within 24 hours, FDA had said that it would base its next steps uh, related to compounded hormone therapy uh, on that report. Well, the report is tragically uh, flawed, uh, to use a theatrical term, a literary term. Um, it, uh, it, it has so many uh, problems with it that we believe it should have no credibility with FDA or anyone else. So we've spent uh, the, 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 the last six months of last year and the first four or so of this year um, working on this issue. And our efforts really, um, they're really threefold. Uh, one of the first things we did, um, our, uh, the Pharmacy Compounding Foundation, our sister foundation, uh, has commissioned a study from the Berkeley Research Group that is an analysis of NASM's CBHT study. Let me say a, something about syntax here because I don't wanna get anyone confused. The NASM study refers to compounded hormone therapy as CBHT. I know many compounders have heard for years, have heard it referred to as CBHRT. A lot of patients don't know what either one of those acronyms mean. And so we're trying to use the term compounded hormones or compounded hormone therapy uh, when we're patient facing in our messages, uh, messaging or, or policymaker uh, facing for, for, for that matter. But the NASM study, when I refer to the NASM study, it refers to it as CBHT. And so if you hear me use that term, um, that, that, is, that is why. Foundation commissioned this analysis. It is due out any day now. I have seen a draft of the analysis and it is a bombshell. It is one of the most damning reports I've seen in my career. Uh, and it points out just with verifiable facts and documentation, emails that were acquired through FOIA requests, et cetera, time and time again throughout the, the, the development uh, of the committee, the formation of the committee, uh, determining what um, research it would look at, and even its final recommendations, FDA was overly involved with NASM. So they, FDA has touted the NASM study as independent. It's not remotely independent. Uh, and in fact, a former FDA employee had considerable undue influence on uh, the recommendations of the committee. No one on the committee, FDA um, recommended to NASM people that it wanted to serve on the committee and some of those were accepted, but none of those people who ended up serving on the committee had any expertise or experience, a real world experience in uh, prescribing or compounding, preparing uh, compounded hormones. Um, the, the study um, relied on, or the, uh, I, I shouldn't call it a study, it's not a study, it's a report. The report relied on just 13 studies um, in making sweeping recommendations that all compounded hormone therapy uh, should be restricted. And those 13 that they looked at didn't even take into consideration uh, the most commonly prescribed hormones. So, I say all that to say that report is coming out any day now, and we aim for it to be a counterweight to the NASM report. The NASM report, with all its flaws, landed with a thud out there, continues to reverberate uh, a bit among people who are interested in compounded hormone therapy. We want a counterweight. We want a document that demonstrates the shortcomings of that NASM uh, report, 
and also demonstrates that there is other evidence out there that shows how um, compounded hormones are enhancing the lives of millions and millions of patients, particularly women. This is very much a women's issue. So that report um, comes out any day now. In addition, we are um, we have launched a fundraising effort to fund a media campaign uh, to engage patients who have benefited from compounded hormone therapy, ask them to tell us their stories, and then share their stories with their members of Congress. FDA, as of yet, has only hinted that it might restrict um, compounded hormone therapy. It, there, there, there's no uh, proposal on the table. Um, they, they, they've not attempted yet uh, to, to get compounded hormones added to the difficult compound list. Uh, for instance, that's one of the recommendations in the NASM, uh, the NASM re re report. So we believe right now is the time to prepare patients, prescribers, and policymakers um, to understand what's at stake here. Policymakers in particular may not know that acronym CBHT. They may not even know the millions of their constituents that benefit from the therapies. And so our first effort is to educate them. That campaign launches with a website uh, at compounding.com in the next couple of weeks. That's where patients will go to tell us their stories and then they can send their story along to their member of Congress. We will also be doing digital advertising uh, that focuses on patients of compounded hormones, prescribers of compounded hormones, and policymakers on Capitol Hill and Washington, and even FDA uh, employees uh, to tell our story uh, about compounded uh, hormones. It's a 1.5 million uh, uh, campaign. Uh, we have raised a little over half of that and almost all of it from individual compounders, pharmacy owners, uh, for whom this is an existential challenge. And uh, we are looking to, we, we've got about 690000 or so dollars uh, to go. Um, and we um, are, are hopeful, every indication is that we should be able to make this goal and launch the campaign. It is one of the most audacious things that this organization has undertaken in its history and uh, we're excited about it. We just got to get, we, we got to get the rest of that funding in so that we can, uh, we can get it off the ground. Scott, just a, I guess a, more of an observation question because I, I believe the last time that we spoke, it was probably right around the time that the original NASM um, story dropped. And just out of curiosity, based on the growth of the alliance and, and hearing your active involvement in regards to, you know, generating more more funds to, to support this fight and everything else that the alliance has been doing, has the the your subscriber base and and your amount of I guess you can call them followers or just overall support has that grown in unique headcount? Uh, because I, I always feel that the alliance has this incredible importance from an advocacy point of view. But when there is something significant that influences, like you mentioned, over 83% of compounding pharmacies that do a significant amount of compounded hormones, did you see an active shift in his, of supporting the organization as well? It's an interesting question, and um, it really relates to one of our biggest challenges as an organization. Um, we have had considerable growth in new members, I believe, as a result of our work on, well, on two issues, certainly compounded hormones, but the, uh, the recoupment effort by TRICARE and Express Scripts last year 
um, helped grow our membership base uh, as well. The problem is not the new member growth. We're doing pretty well there. The problem is our um, current members who, for whatever reason, are letting their memberships lapse without renewing. And so at this point, we are losing members faster than we're gaining members. And as far as sustainability as an organization, that worries me uh, a, a great deal. The interesting thing about this is when uh, we post uh, on, in the Pharmacy Compounding Group on Facebook, uh, we get so much support. When we have a town hall meeting uh, talking about the CBHT media campaign, compounded hormone media campaign that we're launching, we get tons of participants who aren't our members. Um, we're, for whatever reason, and, and it's not for lack of effort, we are not able in all of those circumstances to convert those uh, interested parties, many of whom are compounders and uh, uh, pharmacist technicians, et cetera, we're, our conversion rate on getting them into the organization as new members is not great right now, to the point that uh, our board of directors um, a couple of weeks ago uh, authorized us to, um, to engage an inside sales firm uh, to help us reach out to past members, members who've let their, their, their dues lapse, uh, to bring them back into the fold. Um, membership revenue is about a third of our revenue and uh, we live or die by it. So your, your question is apt, and I may have gone on too long in answering it, but I'm, I'm concerned about sustainability. Our members who like us love us, and they are very supportive, but there are more out there who, to my thinking, are hitchhiking uh, on the work that we do and not belonging to the organization and sharing their, their resources to help us uh, protect their interest. No, I, th I think it's a great answer, and I, I don't believe it was um, it was going off topic in, in any capacity. And it's it was also just interesting for me to know personally, um, in terms of you know what is a, a catalyst for new member growth, what's a catalyst for for donations or et cetera or contributions to the alliance, because it almost feels like in in my history in this industry, it's been close to 20 years, and I, I felt like whenever there's been something significant, it, it appears that the Alliance, or formerly IACP, was more on everybody's radar. So <clears throat> it almost sounds as if that there, there are extra channels like the Compounding Pharmacy Group that exists on Facebook. Uh, we'll, we'll say that that's very one of the, the many uh, channels that do exist in the marketplace. You know, is there anything else that you could recommend to our listeners just to learn more about what initiatives are in place for you. And, and I feel like this is just teeing up, going back to your website, getting back to what the um, Alliance is doing to have a very good understanding that, you know, time is of the essence and we're, we're in a very critical stage, especially right now, hearing also in terms of what, are, what your membership base is truly active on, if that makes any sense. No, it does. It, it, it does. And let me just uh, step back a bit to, to add a couple of things. Um, of the $881,000 that we've raised on the, the compounded hormones media campaign, I would say probably a tenth of that came from non-member compounders. I hadn't figured those folks out yet. They must like what we're doing in terms of compounded hormones, but for whatever reason uh, are not, have, have not yet made the decision to um, to become our members. The other thing that um, I will share as a bit of a trial balloon, our board of directors is considering a different membership model for the organization. We have 
uh, always been an individual membership model. So, uh, Mike, if you join APC, you're joining as Mike. You're not joining as PCCA. Um, we are contemplating the idea of creating a company membership wherein um, a, and this is really for compounding pharmacies and for 503B out, outsourcing facilities. You guys are corporate supporters, so it's a little different for, for you guys, but uh, a member uh, pharmacy uh, or, or the membership would be at the pharmacy level. So let's say Joe Navarra on Long Island, member of my board of directors. Joe would not join as Joe. Joe would join as his pharmacy and every one of his employees would be our members. They would get all the benefits of membership. Um, we would get the benefit of additional dues dollars because a company membership would allow us to charge a higher dues rate. And we would get the benefit of representing more voices when we go to Capitol Hill, when we go to state legislatures, um, uh, et cetera. So those are two things I think worth mentioning. Decision hasn't been made yet. We're creating the model. Uh, the board will take it up again in June and hopefully we'll have a decision uh, about what that, what that might look like. But I, I think it's an important thing. You mentioned how to know what we're doing. If you're a member of the organization, you get our Friday e-newsletter, Compounding Connections, and we do everything we can. Maybe we tell you more than you need to know, but we, uh, we tell you everything we think you need to know um, about pharmacy compounding each week. Our website, particularly under the advocacy tab, is a wealth of information about our policy positions, um, anything you need to know. If you want to, uh, you want to invite your member of Congress to come to your to your to your pharmacy or outsourcing facility. And by the way, I would urge you to do that. It's a great way to have interaction with an elected official. Um, we've got resources on there to help you do that. Talking points, how to schedule the meeting, how to. Um, uh, engage uh, your local newspaper so that there are photographs in the paper and all of that sort of stuff. You'll find just tons and tons of good information on our website. The, um, the one thing that comes to mind as well is, you know, uh, compounders are on Capitol Hill and you just kind of touched on it as well, the importance of knowing your local state representatives and, and making sure the message is also getting across from a grassroots or community level. Um, obviously the pandemic probably has influenced this specifically in the last year. What are, what are the next steps um, for APC's role in all this as well? Because it's one thing that always comes to mind and it's probably one thing that some of our listeners know of the Alliance is you know, having the opportunity for compounding pharmacists to visit uh, Capitol Hill and, and obviously be present and educate their representatives in terms of what is going on with their patients and how they're making a difference. So with, with that all in, in one sentiment, you know, what are the next steps for APC knowing that if the pandemic for the most part is behind us, is that still a primary initiative for the Alliance as well? Oh, it absolutely is. We feel like it's going to come about and it will be an in-person event. The only kicker right now, uh, we're waiting for them to determine a date when the congressional office buildings will reopen for visits. Um, I've heard speculation that that will, will be somewhere around September 1, um, but we'll have to make some decisions uh, based on what they say about that date. But for now, should congressional offices reopen, we are planning to have hundreds of pharmacy compounders walking the halls uh, on Capitol Hill uh, and engaging members of Congress on these issues. And um, compounded hormones will be uh, a, a, a major issue of those discussions. We're anticipating introducing dietary, dietary supplement uh, legislation. Um, we are considering introducing legislation uh, 
that would create an emergency pathway for 503As uh, to compound shortage drugs um, for hospitals and clinics when those drugs are on the shortage list. So an awful lot to talk to Congress about, and we hope we'll, uh, we'll have that opportunity. And this is why it's so important to be involved in advocacy and, and align with advocacy groups that are actually out there working and, and, and doing so much for the community. And this is why um, that history, even though we've had a name change, we, we're still looking at that advocacy history and that um, connectivity that's really going to make change for us and, and keep our niche practice alive. So, and by the way, for those of you in other countries outside of the United States, what happens here um, with respect to those legislative actions, with those regulatory oversights, it does leak out into other countries. We see this very much in Canada and Australia where they're looking back to USP and the FDA for some sort of level of guidance, best practices, changes in regulatory landscape. So don't think that this is, oh, it's just a US issue. This is, a, this is truly an international global issue. It's just we're focusing our efforts where we're seeing big bites. Um, I, I did want to just kind of touch back a little bit with respect to that report, the counterweight report. When it is published, how, do pe how are people going to find it? And I know it's a sister organization, but I know that you're also speaking to it. So I wanted to just bring this up. Is there going to be a way for people to be able to access this and read this? Uh, are they going to be able to find it on your website? And are there other key pieces of information on your website that you want to share today? Yes, 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 and yes. Uh, <laughs> I happen to be the CEO both of the Alliance for Pharmacy Compounding and the Pharmacy Compounding Foundation, so uh, I know a little bit about this. Um, the report, when released, will be widely released. We will first share it internally. Um, we have scheduled a briefing uh, call uh, where we will walk through the report. It will be on our website. It will also be submitted to FDA as a formal comment on the docket at which point it becomes a public uh, document. Um, we will also be doing some media on it uh, as well and hopefully lining up some interviews and some coverage beyond just the pharmacy trade uh, press. So uh, at least that's our, that's our ambition. Uh, we'll see how that, uh, that works out. But uh, very shortly, the report should be easily um, accessible and we're excited about it. It's, uh, the interesting thing about it is this is a report that is it's very straightforward. There's no exaggeration. There's no hyperbole. And yet it is stunning. It's about 48 pages long. So, you know, Scott, thank you so much for covering just all these amazing initiatives. I think in, in a nutshell, um, a year has gone by extremely slow for most. And then for others, it's gone by extremely quick. It, it sounds that, you know, over the last year, you've had your hands full and, and I just appreciate you doing that recap for all of our listeners because PCCA member or not, APC member or not, um, it, this, this type of kind of a state of the union address, as I mentioned from the beginning, gives every compounding pharmacy just an amazing overview as to, you know, what the industry is facing as a challenge and, and also what we are doing in terms of advocacy and how important it is. You know, with that being said, um, and I know we may have discussed this last time, but I, we do want to give you that opportunity to, to kind of mention to all of our listeners, what is the call to action out of all this? And, and what are some of your recommendations in your role as CEO of the Alliance? Yeah, um, 
here's the pitch. First of all, if you are a pharmacy compounding professional, and you can define that any way you want, a technician is every bit a pharmacy compounding professional, as is a compounding pharmacist or a supply chain professional or an educator who teaches students uh, how to compound. If you're one of those things, you need to be a part of our organization. We are the voice for pharmacy compounding. We are the advocate for the profession uh, in which you work, and we need you. We need your voice. We need your involvement. As I, I hope has been indicated in uh, this conversation, we are uh, a pretty ambitious organization. We're a pretty active organization. We're taking on a number of issues with direct impact on uh, compounding pharmacies and outsourcing facilities. And just, I can't say it enough, we need you. We need you, we need you. Particularly on CBHT related to the MOU, our proposed legislation, just a range of other things. You need to be a part of those discussions. You need to be aware of what we're doing and you need to support us. We would welcome you uh, in the organization. Uh, Mike, is it okay if I list our email, uh, our uh, website address? Please list your website and then also make mention of any um, anywhere where people can connect with you via social media. And, and that's a, a public statement because we we also mentioned on behalf of us. But I think it's so important to stay connected to the, to the alliance, really, if it's LinkedIn, Facebook or even Instagram, because I know that you are active on some social media platforms. And it's just a great way to hear about what's going on and what you guys have been working on, even if you're not a member. So yeah, absolutely, share away. Yeah, I, I, I think social media is entry level. If you're not sure you wanna be a member, follow us on social media. At Twitter, that's A4PCRX, and that's A number four uh, PCRX. Uh, um, you can also follow us on Facebook and uh, LinkedIn. Uh, we do almost daily updates um, and we would love to have you as followers. Um, you can find plenty of information uh, on our website. That is a4pc.org slash, uh, if you'll do slash join, that's where you can join the organization. It takes about three minutes, very easy but um, you can do slash CBHT and find out everything we're doing uh, related to compounded hormones and the campaign uh, that I mentioned. The website's a good place uh, to explore, but we would love for you to engage with us. And for those of you who aren't members, hopefully ultimately that will lead to you um, becoming a member of our organization. We'd be grateful to have you. Yeah, so well said. And, and also to what you mentioned earlier as well, if you are a member, um, and you feel that you have not necessarily been as connected, uh, try to reach out to, to a4pc.org uh, to learn more about what's been going on with your membership as well, because that's one thing that you don't want to leave behind, and um, especially in a time like, like we're in right now. So uh, also call to action for those that are actively involved, but might be more of the silent type, and, and to learn more about how they can also support the organization knowing that uh, your attrition rate is also extremely important as well. Um, thank you, Scott. You know, this is such a great opportunity for Sebastian and I to sit down with you. And, and we would love to have you back. And, and even as we learn more about the outcome of what the next steps are to the, the latest of what's been going on with NASM, um, it would be great to have you back in a few months to learn the impact of all that and, and kind of where we're at as well as most are truly eager to know how they can protect uh, compounded hormones and what that means for the patient community. Certainly. I'd love to come back uh, whenever uh, you feel is appropriate. And uh, let me say again, 
how much I appreciate you guys and our great partnership with PCCA. Well, we appreciate you equally as much, if not more. Um, it, this means so much to the entire community, to the entire industry. This is beyond uh, just what PCCA does as a supplier um, and as a partner in compounding pharmacy. This, this is really about the physicians, the patients, and, and every single member that we also serve. So thank you so much for coming on. It was truly a pleasure, and thank you, Seb. Uh, and once again, thanks to all of our listeners out there for tuning into this very special episode. Um, it is truly highly important for everyone to stay connected with the Alliance in terms of what they are doing and their position for advocacy in the marketplace. Uh, Scott mentioned uh, a myriad of ways to stay connected, whether it's through the website or through social media. And for the sake of the importance of that, I will not even mention um, how to stay connected with PCCA at this point. But if you did appreciate this episode, don't forget to click subscribe so you never miss a future episode. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, this is Mike Delisio.